Some of you are going to think I'm a crackpot junkie after 30 minutes from now. Who's ever felt like they're not good enough? It is so common. We'll all agree in this room that it's those broken moments that give us the opportunity to go within. I was smoking, I was drinking, and then I fell in love, which was so inconvenient at the time. Probably for the first 30 plus years of my life, I was really scared of the truth. The thing about truth is, it's bullshit. (laughs) Nobody gets through life unscathed. We all look at that as if our life is screwed up, that that is actually an opportunity for us to grow and expand. In 2019, the Wellness Base Camp returns. In Fremantle. Newcastle. And our first ever international adventure in Auckland. Two for one tickets are under 100 bucks. Get them before they run out at thewellnessbasecamp.com. The Real Food Real is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we explore a six-month gut healing journey with pre- and post-microbiome testing. You will learn the importance of testing and obtaining a correct diagnosis, the significance of foundational gut healing principles, and why it is so important to commit to the journey but aim for consistency, not necessarily perfection. This is a fascinating discussion, which we hope will provide insight into the process of gut restoration and the journey to optimal health. Steph, we've had so much inquiry into the detecting dysbiosis conversation that we aired a few weeks ago. So today what I wanted to do was delve into a real life case study so we can give the audience a bit more of an understanding of you know, what that journey is like from coming into clinic to then deciding that they want to go and do some more detailed microbiome testing. So we're going to talk in detail about this case, but Steph, can you start with giving the audience an idea of what they presented with when when you first met them? 
Yeah. So firstly, I'm going to call this client Jane. Okay. Jane just because um, Jane has given us the approval to discuss her case and she's definitely made it clear that she's happy to um, for us to share everything. Um, but just from an anonymity point of view, that's probably not even how you pronounce it, but to keep things anonymous, we're going to call her Jane. <laughs> and um, Jane came to see me initially back in... Um, I think maybe actually even just over a year ago in yep. September, 2017. And we just, we went in detail and, and discussed a lot about her goals and the two main goals that Jane came to me for support with was her overall health, which included, um, continuing her recovery from chronic f- fatigue syndrome, which is something that she actually was diagnosed with 15 years prior um, and so she had come a long way, but it was the sort of acceleration of, of that recovery process. Mm-hmm. And then her secondary goal was to help with her body composition and, and loosen body fat. Mm-hmm. And did you determine whether Jane had worked with practitioners in the past to overcome her chronic fatigue? Yeah, absolutely. So just like everyone that works with us for the first time at TNN, we start with an initial consultation and we always do a fairly detailed medical history. And for me personally, I am big on timelines. I love to put together timelines in terms of their health history. um, And I always get my clients to think about answering or finishing this sentence I've never been the same since. And when you fill in the blanks, it really starts to allow us as practitioners to unpack where things potentially started or it can be a bit of an epiphany for someone to think that far back in time Mm -hmm. to acknowledge where things started to head um, in the wrong direction, essentially, away from health. So, yeah, I certainly spoke to Jane about her medical history Um, She had seen a number of different practitioners, definitely more conventional practitioners. Um, I know she has also done things like chiropractic, reflexology, and she still sees an acupuncturist quite regularly. So, yeah, we spoke in great detail about the diagnosis, which was, I believe, 2001, and how her health journey kind of unfolded from there. Um, And along the way, you know, we definitely looked at her history in detail, but a lot of the history was the symptoms of that CFS picture and her main symptoms when she walked in the door were things like um, tiredness, you know, it was no longer the overwhelming fatigue that she experienced with CFS, but definitely some energy challenges, um, poor immune system. So she had a what she explained as an inability to recover from minor illnesses. She was experiencing poor memory recall, interrupted sleep and weight gain. So for me, that was painting the picture of what potentially was going on. But with my clients, obviously I love when someone's number one goal is health. Like I just love that from a priority point of view, but it allows us to think about what might be going on in terms of where we're going to focus. And for me, a little bit further down the track, where we might do more testing to gather a bit more data about those symptoms or connect the dots because a lot of them have similar um, underlying reasons or explanations. Yeah. And CFS is actually really quite a complex condition, you know. Mm. Um, We had Nikki Gratrix on the show last year talking about CFS, really interesting discussion for anybody who wants to delve into that more deeply. Mm -hmm. Um, But is, is gut health testing and stool testing something that you would do with 
you know, most patients that come into clinic with CFS or a history of CFS? Yeah, in an ideal world, absolutely. Like my practice has obviously changed as I grow as a practitioner and as I continue to learn more and especially with access to the new technologies that we've had since we started TNN in 2011. Um, And I guess in an ideal world, I would get everyone to do their stool test um, once I meet them and kind of understand a little bit more about what we're trying to achieve, of course, but we all know the, you know, that, that age old saying that all disease starts in the gut. So too does all health. So it absolutely has to be factored into the equation. And there are a number of common um, elements of dysbiosis or bacterial imbalances that have links with CFS. So it is really important that the, that for me, my clients understand that Mm. it's often neglected in a more conventional wisdom sense. Mm. Um, So yeah, to answer your question in an ideal world, um, as we spoke about in detecting dysbiosis, there are a few cost limitations for some people. So, you know, if we can't do the stool testing first, there are so many foundations that we could address first. Mm. And that's a call that I make from getting to know that person, usually in their first appointment, because if they're following a completely Western diet with you know, there's more sort of food pyramid type meal choices. And if it's very high in refined carbohydrates, we're going to get a lot of benefits by teaching them how to build their plate and moving to a real food template and changing their metabolism to be um, fat burning in nature. So there's, there's a lot of things that we can do first, but in an ideal world, yes, we would do stool testing and Bioscreen is the company that we use here mostly at TNN. Yeah. So in working with Jane, um, was stool testing the first test, like the first test that you went to, or was there any other testing that you had done between meeting her firstly and then doing stool testing? Yeah, good question. We pretty much dived straight in with the stool testing, but also because Jane had worked with a number of practitioners mm. and had had a lot of tests done in the past. So um, she was already taking a number of supplements that um had been advised from her chiropractor, I believe. And so that was a slightly different case. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to come and see you or I, Ellie, and um, have some supplements. But um, in her case, they had come from blood tests. We definitely did more blood tests. There are usually gaps that need to be filled from what my ideal list is. Um, But in her case, um, she was also eating what you would call quite well. Um, long story short, her partner referred Jane to see me um, and I've already worked sort of, let's say, virtually yep. with her partner. So they had a bit more of an understanding about real food and and some of my philosophy. So she was kind of somewhere in the middle and um, at the same time a little bit further along the journey than some people because she'd worked with multiple practitioners over like, you know, over a decade, essentially. Yeah. And she was already on some supplements that you would have expected um, if, if nutrient deficiency was the, was the cause for her low energy levels, you would have expected they maybe would have helped to shift the needle for her in terms of an energy standpoint. So I imagine that's why going straight into the stool testing was something that she was actually quite open to doing. Yeah, for sure. And we've got to remember you can take all the supplements in the world, but if your absorption is low, from a gut health issue, from a like in increased intestinal permeability point of view, you're, you simply won't be absorbing the supplement. So for me, 
that's something I always try and keep in mind because in Jane's example, just one of the supplements was B12. So yes, we often see low B12 to be a significant contributing cause to lethargy. Um, but if you're taking B12 but not absorbing it, then obviously you're going around in circles, right? So the, the gut absorption is huge. Um, and as we always say, it's about testing, not guessing. So we don't know if you've got leaky gut. And I hate making assumptions. So starting to dive deeper and get data is how we start to look at it. Right? Well, is there an issue with absorption? And obviously, if so, then let's fix it. Mm. Yeah. So Bioscreen is the, the lab that we use predominantly mm-hmm. um, and, you know, listeners will have heard us refer to them, specific, especially in that detecting dysbiosis conversation and people will also be aware that Kirsty Worth is often on the show uses um, Bioscreen. Um, but I know that number of, of people coming into clinic these days are sort of also having discussions with their doctors and other practitioners around stool testing and perhaps hearing about other labs that are doing similar things. Are you noticing that as well, that some of your clients are actually coming in, you know, asking questions about other labs and whether they should be using their stool testing over a bioscreen, for example? Yeah, all the time, especially even like this year, I would say, because A, gut health is so vogue, B, there's a much greater demand for stool testing. So whilst companies like Clinical Labs and Nutripath have been around for longer than I've been a practitioner, and so that, and all I know is that they've always offered stool testing, there, um, there are other companies like um, more US-based brands, but I'm definitely seeing those kind of reports, which is interesting for me to learn how to interpret them. And yeah. um, also for my own opinion and what my preference is because I'm very used to using Bioscreen, um, I've used um, Clinical Lab CDSA, which is a complete digestive stool analysis, but um, obviously more of these newer companies are just coming through now. So I'm open. I'm definitely open, but I don't like the spending lots of money on lots of tests because too many people um, maybe over-test. And you obviously can't treat everything at once, which for me is a really important discussion to have with all of my clients. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, as cliche as it is, but when I look at whatever report, there's no way that we're going to throw a bomb at it and do everything at once. And I had a client in yesterday who um, is, you know, really excited for the results and wants to do everything and I'm like having to put the brakes on and that's what I see one of my big roles as a practitioner is, is to help prioritise what happens first and to develop the plan with an evolutionary nature to it because, you know, there's things that you'll learn more about today. But, you know, ultimately I see it as a restoration of the microbiome, which is a gentle nudge from what you do and how you live and the choices that you make and maybe a couple of supplements that you add. It's not the bomb approach that we can see in the West or that some people wish they could do to speed things up. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why I love that we're having this conversation today because um, I oft- I find that people come in expecting to get a, an overview of their their, their stool sample, that their rep- like get their report, um, and then at the end of that maybe get given the advice of, you know, one pill that they can take. So uh, I guess another way of putting it is individuals come into clinic using um, a more holistic testing method but are expecting that Western model of treatment, which is the one pill to fix it all, whereas the reality is is that if we're restoring the microbiome, you know, there's a timeline involved. Oh, and it's about a six-month timeline, which some people hate to hear. Mm. I just find it so fascinating, actually. I've been um, working with lots of different 
um, clients this week. So there was that one example from yesterday and, and he's quite gung-ho and he wants to do it all. But at the same time, when you say six months, they treat it like it's eternity and, you know, it almost makes them feel a little bit um, deflated. Mm. Then I'll talk to another client on the same day and I'll talk about like what we're going to do for the first one to three months. And his immediate response was, okay, three months, but if I commit to six, do you think I'll have a better chance of restoring my microbiome and repeating that test and getting some great results? And I was like, absolutely. And he was like, let's do six months then. And I was like, let's do six months then. I love that. And of course it's going to evolve through that time together. But for me, there's so much sort of personality trait and mindset involved as well, because it's a huge thing to do. Like, I remember the first time I saw a bioscreen report, like it is written in another language almost. <laughs> and for the you know, non-practitioner, it is something that can be a little bit overwhelming and to stare down the barrel of a six-month journey. Like I get it, mm. but I think it's so powerful to have the information and to have guidance, that one-on-one guidance to, to fix it mm. rather than just hitting your head against a wall or guessing and and spending money and years on practitioners and supplements. Yeah. I think that's also when you've got to, like, why you have to realize and when you have got to remember that real food is not a diet. Mm -hmm. You know, that foundation of real food, getting off the food pyramid, it's not a diet. It's actually a lifestyle. So therefore, when you get the results of your stool testing and you realize that real food is the foundation, don't look at it as a three-month, six-month real food protocol. Look at it as a lifestyle. And then it's not as confronting. Well, that's exactly why we spend so much time. I completely agree with the analysis phase because a lot of what we do is food naturally, right? And my goal is is for my client to integrate those strategies into their life, into their meal plan, into their family, so that at the end of six, six months, we just don't come to a halt and drop all the balls. And then one back in the same yeah, place you were end six up months at earlier. square one. Exactly. So, you know, just one of the examples that we all talk about is broth. And I know in one of the episodes that Kirsty and I recorded, she was talking about like four to six serves. So many of my clients have freaked out since hearing that. And I wanted to kind of soften, but also really talk to the individual because there, as we'll dive into shortly, there's a particular part of the stool testing, which actually tells us how much you need. And it can be an unfortunate reality if you do get told to, to learn to use more I don't want you to assume that applies to everybody, but I also want you to remember the evolution of it all. If you're having one cup, well, that's way better than zero, yeah? And we've just got to think about things. I almost think we need to step outside and look at the results without the kind of emotional um, element involved because it is overwhelming, but you've just got to break it down because, yeah, as you say, it's a lifestyle. A lot of the strategies are forever things. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to a little lady Jane, what were the what what were the results like when you got those back? Yeah, let's dive screen? in. Really fascinating. So some of you that are listening would have seen an example report that we've shared before, and if you haven't, we'll share that again in the show notes, just so that you can use that while you're listening or when you go back through your replay. Um, let me just make sure I've got the right one because we've obviously done a repeat test with Jane as well. Awesome. So a few different things, like just to kind of dive into how Bioscreen um, delivered their reports. We know that there's a fecal microbial analysis, which is the FMA, and we look at the um, aerobic to anaerobic ratio 
Um, and some examples of the aerobic bacteria um, in Jane that were definitely imbalanced. Um, number one, I'll absolutely say was streptococcus. Now we often hear about streptococcus as being like um, strep throat and people think it's like bad, yeah, but it's what we call a commensal bacteria, which means it lives inside or it should live inside the human microbiome, but only in very small amounts. So when we talk about relative to the overall percentage of aerobic bacteria, it should be about 5%. So a little, a little yeah, amount just of a fraction. Yeah. And Jane had 99.6%. Wow. wow. So yeah, f five is the goal or less than five, and we're talking about 99.6. So clearly we're dealing with a significant overgrowth of streptococcus, and this can actually really explain a lot of her symptoms. You know, this is quite general, um, but I do want to go back to um, some of the symptoms that Jane walked in and what we see with high streptococcus. So we definitely see things like brain fog, um, and we see other related sort of neurocognitive impairments, um, and we also see things like poor memory, which Jane was experiencing, and we see um, sleep impairment, which is another problem, which obviously a lot of those definitely flow on to low energy. And um, we can start to see, all right, well, there is um, a lot of sort of, in my opinion, clear symptoms, which we can use as barometers. So what I mean by that is that, you know, you're going to start to make changes and so your initial bioscreen test is no longer going to be what your gut looks like. And so what you've got to look at is what are the main symptoms and how I can track their improvement over time. You know, it's going to be correlation, don't get me wrong, but if you start to see that your sleep is improving, then we can start to say, all right, well, let's keep doing A, B and C and keep tracking that over the course of the six-month period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um so that was the main one. And then in conjunction with, with that, which is very common, they operate in a seesaw-like fashion, we saw we, with Jane basically very low levels of E. coli. Now, E. coli is another bacteria that we hear about in a more negative sense, like a lot of people know about it from the, um, like the overgrowth. In the ponds. And yeah, lakes. yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Again, a commensal bacteria. It um, has a significant role in producing melatonin, our mm. sleep hormone, and when we have a significant overgrowth of strep, by default, our E. coli is crowded out and our levels are often very low as a result. Was Jane experiencing any troubles with constipation or bowel movements going mm. to the bathroom? Yeah, good point. I actually was looking at some of her digestive symptoms while we were talking about before, which I didn't mention um, I don't know that we talked about it initially, mm. but yeah, she had also been taking some antibiotics more recently for uh, a more immune-related situation, mm -hmm. and she was definitely experiencing um, bloating and constipation, and great point because we know that E. coli is huge in that motility role, so it's, it's essential for regular bowel movements, and yeah, treating or rebalancing the E. coli levels is often a constipation treatment, especially in that more chronic condition mm. that we see a lot here in the clinic. Not so much with Jane, interestingly, but it was still something that was definitely needing to be improved. Yeah. Okay. Something to consider. Yeah. Um, there was a slight overgrowth of Enterococcus, which is, in my opinion, delivers quite similar symptoms to the Streptococcus, but in terms of the aerobic bacteria, they were the two major ones. And because of that upside-down ratio between the strep and the E. coli, I didn't mention, 
E. coli is supposed to be about 70 to 90% distribution and, and we had a zero. So yeah. obviously completely upside down and our big goal was to turn that around, Yeah, which will teach you how we did. I guess when you're looking at those sorts of imbalances, like that sort of upside down nature of the ratio of um, E. coli to streptococcus that starts to give you an idea of just perhaps how long she's been dealing with dysbiosis for. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. People will always say, oh, how did this start or when did this start? And it's such a tricky question to answer. You can definitely use some of the information that they provide you in that. Um, I've never been the same since mm. statement. Um, but you'll never actually know when it really started. But, yes, often the size of the imbalance is based on the time that it's existed. So this could have been there for the 10 to 15 years, mm. but we'll never know. Mm. <laughs> cool. The second half of Bioscreen FMA looks at the anaerobic bacteria. Um, and I'm going to break this down a little bit further. Our most predominant anaerobic strain is known or are known as the Bacteroides. These we see, um, we ideally want to see a distribution of 90 to 95%, so the majority of the anaerobic bacteria, and we love to see lots of, of different strains. So five or more strains is the goal, which in my mind replicates that beautiful rainforest, that diversity or part of, um, and also the foundation of the immune system, so how robust we are. So for Jane, one of the big symptoms was um, how flawed she was from minor illnesses and how impaired her recovery was to bounce back. And her bacteroides, instead of being 90 to 95%, were 6% and she had only one strain instead of five. So we wow. call that a limited species distribution and we know that this is probably our secondary goal to address. Yeah, mm-hmm. quite a bit of work to do to pick that, pick that level of uh, imbalance up. Yeah, absolutely. But a lot of work, again, from a dietary standpoint, you know, bacteroides is not a strain that you can you can grow via a pill or a probiotic capsule. Well, that's what I find hilarious. Like nobody has ever, ever heard of bacteroides like mm. that I speak with. And I sell it. <laughs> I honestly believe that's because it's not on TV and it's not in a pill. Yeah. Whereas the other um, strains that we'll get to next, the lactobacilli and the bifido, most people are like, oh, yeah, that's not unfamiliar to me. You know, I've heard it on TV or I've read it on my yogurt or whatever. Um, and, yeah, that's because there's a commercial nature to it, sadly, which is the big food world that we live in. So for Jane, she had um, negligible or non-detectable levels of lactobacilli, our, um, one of the key anaerobic bacteria that we know should only make up a fairly small fraction of the equation, but as we also know, major roles in terms of our, our immunity and developing or um, producing our neurotransmitters and, um, you know, having a big role in mental health as a result. Mm. She also had um, low levels of eubacterium, which, again, not one we hear of because we don't sell it, um, found largely in things like chicken and chicken broth, which is um, challenging to hear for our vegetarians and vegans. Mm. Um, and um, Again, we'll get to the strategy shortly, but they were the really, really big ones. You know, I think, again, quite a significant level of dysbiosis. And, um, yeah, for me, a pretty good um, explanation as to, to what was going on and really exciting that we had, we had this information and we could set up a bit of a plan for the next six months. Yeah. 
So let's get, let's get diving into the plan then. What did we do? Yeah, what was, <laughs> what was number one on the priority list? I think you've already highlighted yeah, you know, yeah. that it was that streptococcus overgo. Yeah, well, I kind of look at it from the other angle. I think E. coli is the most important. Mm-hmm. So we obviously wanted to get the E. coli up. Um, but to do that, we also had to bring that streptococcus down. So they're kind of done at the same time. Um, yeah, so that was our big goal. Now, I don't want to give away like detailed protocols because I don't want people self-treating. Precisely. Yeah. So this isn't going to be like anything you can write down and follow yourself, and that's intentional. So I want you to know that. Um, but I want to talk about like a bit of an overview of what the treatment plan, plan looks like. So our goal, obviously, as we discussed, is to increase the E. coli and um, lower the streptococcus. So we acknowledge that when we see these bacterial overgrowths, we really need to remember that they form the biofilm, yeah? They form that protective shield around them collectively, which would otherwise make them resistant to antibiotic or antimicrobial treatment. So we want to make sure that we've factored in some kind of a biofilm release or biofilm breakdown, which, which is done usually by enzymes or certain products like N-acetylcysteine or pomegranate, which act to break down that protective shield so that when you go in with the desired treatment, you're going to um, actually achieve the desired result. So we did some biofilm release work via enzymes and we used a couple of different antimicrobial agents across the six-month period. Um, a few I love as an example are things like Tega, oregano oil, and you can use um, other oils like thyme and clove. Mm-hmm. So antimicrobials are obviously nature's antibiotics. They don't have the side effects of destroying the other beneficial bacteria. But important to note that there are some side effects. So again, this is mm. you know this is not a prescription for you as an individual to go out and and get your hands on these antimicrobials, but more just to be aware of the general approach that that we take in clinic. For sure, and we spend a lot of time with our patients, with our clients, talking to them about what's going to happen with the introduction of antimicrobials. So. What we know is they're going to go in and start to cause the die-off of, of, in this case, the streptococcus overgrowth, which is going to cause the release of endotoxins from those bacteria, which if we don't get out of the body, will recirculate through the blood and potentially cross the blood-brain barrier and contribute to a whole host of horrific symptoms. So for some people, it's purely digestive, literally running to the bathroom, um, in others, it's a skin rash, so the toxins come out of the skin and it comes out in rashes or hives. I've seen some, like, literally all over the body. That was one case. Um, and for others, it's like brain fog, obviously fatigue, those kind of more neurocognitive issues. So you need to have a protocol that supports the liver. So naturally, while you'll have your real food foundations, I hope, um, but also having strategies, whether it's charcoal, bentonite clay, sweating, saunas, fermented beetroot, cruciferous vegetables, lowering your exposure to toxins, like things like some foundations you're already doing, but usually people need a lot more. So in Jane's case, we were using an, um, charcoal tablets and they simply use to, um, so sorry, they simply act to bind the toxins, take them out with the stool. So you'll see black stools from the colour of the charcoal Um, And we know that wrapped up in there is the toxin. So it's really important. In the literature, you'll see it referred to as a Herxheimer reaction. Um, Our role or our goal as 
practitioners is to avoid that. You know, we see people almost using it as a little bit of a badge of honour. Mm, a barometer of like how, how well the antimicrobials are working. Which is bullshit. It's a barometer of how shit your protocol is because you're not supporting your body during that time. And I'm not saying that you don't get it. People get sick, but it just shows us what's missing. And I'm definitely not saying that none of my clients have experienced because there are situations where, you know, I think we've already kind of mentioned maybe three supplements. And in an ideal world, I wish there was none. Like I would love to be able to treat everything with food. I just know I can't. But some people think, oh, no, I'll just start with that. And then later on, they're like, I'm desperate for that charcoal or yeah. give me that bentonite clay. And that's okay. We have to learn the hard way sometimes. But the more I do this, the more education and emphasis I put on those basics because you can't build a house with the roof, as mm. I always say. Mm. Cool. So then we um, we sort of move to our second priority, which is still just as important, is to regrow those bacteroid yeast. So this is largely all done through food. Can we take a step back? Mm-hmm. Because we talked about the streptococcus overgrowth. Yep. And managing that to help build up the E. coli levels. Mm-hmm. But was there anything else done at that point to support those low E. coli levels? In this instance, there wasn't mm-hmm. initially, um, purely based on my decision as a practitioner. But you, you can. You can literally take E. coli um, in a capsule, which is a product known as Mutaflor, and that is literally like a probiotic that's purely made from E. coli. Mm-hmm. So in some cases we use that, um, and it is going to be... Um, part of the protocol eventually um it is yeah unfortunately the only way i would like to see other products so the price comes down because it is not a cheap probiotic um but yeah that's definitely something that we can use and e coli also love our three foods our chickpeas hazelnuts and figs so from a food first point of view we'll definitely talk about those foods because they aren't common foods people are avoiding legumes because they're afraid of them because of the whole paleo movement or what it used to look like. Obviously, figs we wouldn't be eating too much of in an LCHF template, so most of my clients get into fermenting them in their cultural wellness products. And hazelnuts, yep, they're not like used as the same frequency as we would almonds, but very easy to swap into your trail mix or your granola or use as one of your um, healthy fat portions on your salad, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so food first um, and then yeah, supplementation option. Depending on what the full you know, plate full starts protocol. to look like, I start to get a little bit nervous if there's too many supplements on the table. That is my pet hate. <laughs> cool. So back to Roydies. Back to Roydies. Yeah. So we can move on now. No, no problems. So just to recap, Jane wanted, was like we wanted to see about a 90 to 95% distribution and we're dealing with six. Mm. So clearly quite a bit of work to do here. Um, the best news is that most of us, is done with dietary changes. So the two big ones that people hate to hear but is the reality, Bacteroides love bone broth and organ meats. So not the most appealing choices, especially for anyone that's been a little bit more pesco or veggio in the past, myself included, Um, but, again, not a supplement and something we can start to look at um, over time. Like the good thing about organ meats is it's only really 100 grams a week. So picture a normal wheel of cheese, cut it in half, it's half a wheel of cheese across the half a wheel of organ meat. Organ meat. <laughs> yeah, bad day. A week to start. So it's not a huge amounts, and we tend to treat it like we would with children, hiding vegetables, hiding it into our food. But liver pate is beautiful when it's made properly and you have it with your veggie sticks or seed crackers. Yeah. Um, not everyone's cup of tea. That's cool. I present the options, but broth is a pretty non-negotiable. And this is where we get back to that conversation that we're having with Kirsty around 
four to six cups a day. Now I probably wouldn't start any of my clients there because they'd probably never come back. <laughs> um, but we acknowledge in Jane's example, she's going to need more than one. If she was obviously having none, then we would start with one and, and gradually increase. That's my role to make the call as a practitioner. But acknowledging we can also regrow bacteroides with our free-range eggs, grass-fed meats, certain cheeses like brie and gouda, apple cider vinegar, and our prebiotics. Mm. And there's lots of amazing products these days that have been created or made available to allow that bone broth consumption to become a little bit more easy, right? So we've got, you know, the bone broth derived protein powders now. We've got the mm-hmm. flavorless bone broth um, pr- powders mm-hmm. that you can include in things like your MCT coffee if that's something that you're doing in the morning. Mm-hmm. So those sorts of options make it easier for the likes of Jane to include the bone broth in her diet. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually often forget to. And I was at a corporate seminar this week and I brought it up and I was like, how's this going to go down? (laughs) Because it can go either way, yeah? Yeah. Um, And one of the um, organisers of the seminar kind of popped up and was like, just let you know, you don't have to make it. Don't think you're going to have this local Quran 247. Um, You know, these are some of the brands that I use. And I was like, awesome, because it's time or money, yeah? You can spend the money. It's 30 bucks for a month. If you're going to buy it, it'll probably cost you maybe five or 10 if you were to make it, but not everyone has time. And I can't tell you the last time I made bone broth, I choose to purchase it. So I'm very, very happy with that option. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever works. Yeah. yeah. And whatever makes it more sustainable. And also just highlighting as well for those people that don't love the flavor of bone broth straight off the bat, because I, you know, had an email in my inbox this morning from a client who was like, Ellie, I, I can't, can't do it. can't deal with it. Mm. What do I do here? Um, just persist with it. You know, go back, try it again, try it again four days later give it some time because it is one of those flavors that does, um, it grows on you. Yeah. I'm going to swear now. So kitties block your ears. The first bone broth I had, I've still got the visual. I was sitting down to breakfast. I had some eggs and some veggies and some avo. I had a cup of bone broth that was homemade. I took a sip and out loud, I said, how the fuck do people do this? (laughs) I was a veggie for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably another 10 years ago, but it was just so overwhelming. But I find homemade to be very meaty. Yet most of the brands that I buy, like the ones we sell here at TNN, like the Best of the Bone or the Tone Made, I love them now. And yeah, my taste buds, taste buds have changed, but they obviously get how polarizing bone broth is. So they've found a way to make it more palatable. Oh, so yeah. definitely give that a try. Yeah. So I get the um, I get the ones with turmeric in it because I find that turmeric flavor a little more palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I personally put a dash of my almond, my hazelnut and coconut milk in there. Soften it. Just to soften it a little bit. And that's how I get it down the trap. Love it. Awesome. So the last couple of points I wanted to make about Jane's first test was in regards to the low lactobacilli levels that we discussed. So we definitely need to start with those prebiotics to provide food for these beneficial bacteria to thrive. So we know our prebiotics are found in onions, garlic, leeks, asparagus, and artichokes, um, cooked and cooled sweet potato, potato, or white rice. Now, this cooking and cooling conversation freaks people out. I can't tell you how many times I say cooked and cooled and you can reheat it for five seconds later. Do I have to eat it cold? Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't have to eat cold rice or cold white potato, I promise. Think about roasting a batch of veggies on a Sunday, having it in your salad during the week. Or maybe you decide to have our green chicken curry with long grain rice on a Monday night, which your leftovers then turn into resistant starch, your prebiotic intake for the week. Yeah. So super simple, no extra time, just being a little bit more strategic with what our meal plan looks like. So we're not starving our gut bugs. I see too many people taking a deep dive into keto with no prebiotics, no resistant starch and dysbiosis as a result. Let's not do that. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. 
So that was the summary of her results and our treatment program. Obviously, we haven't covered it too much, but I spent a lot more time with Jane refining her food, teaching her how to build her plate and translating that into practical ideas. She's a young mum. She has a very busy job um, and a, a daughter to juggle and a partner and a couple of pups. So lots going yeah, on. lots going on. And we're just thinking about really simple ideas. Obviously, food is the foundation. We got her onto a smoothie for breakfast where, where she could put that cultural wellness kefir into it to um, start to integrate the plan into the meals. And we gave her some leftover ideas and some of our really basic um, good batch cook recipes that we always use here, like our shepherd's pie, which, by the way, you can do with sweet potato mash to become resistant starch the next day, slow-cooked meals, and just that whole cook once, eat twice or cook once, eat four times philosophy that we teach you guys so that you're in the kitchen for the least amount of time with the maximum results to allow that food to be there for you when you know when time is tight. Let's face it, we've all got to eat. So why not try and just make the food that is going to support your recovery process and reduce the amount of money that you possibly have to spend on other supplements? Mm, That's the way I see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So shall we move to like the after or like Well the yeah, I'm after? really interested mm. to get to the repeat testing. So I am too. We know that mm. um like Bioscreen as an organization offer that, that option to do your retest at a slightly discounted rate mm-hmm. if you do it within a six-month period. Mm-hmm. So that's a really nice timeline to work towards, you know. I think so too. I think it's important that you factor in that retest because how are you going to know what's working and what's still there because it's not going to take six months to fix everything, let me tell you that. But it's a really good time to make a big change and then allow you to refocus on what the next kind of priorities are. Mm. I am obsessed with this before and after. Like, and so is Jane. She told me when we spoke over email recently that she has the results on her fridge because she is so proud. And I just think that is epic because they are amazing. They are so good. So where do we start? Let's talk about our strep levels. So remember we were talking about a distribution of 99.6% and we ended up with 13 Wow. So 13%. Obviously not quite there. Our goal is less than five, but I am bloody happy with that. I think that yeah. is night and day. And she must have been mm. feeling so, so different yeah. by that point. Yeah, she's a different person. And, like, I'm not saying that she's there yet. Like, I don't think the health journey is over, but is it really ever? I don't no, think so either. No. I've still got one. Um, but, yeah, night and day in terms of energy and resilience and her training, like she's getting into strength training and working with the PT and feeling great most of the time. Um and just, yeah, no more brain fog and, yeah, not feeling like that old person anymore that was really what she was dealing with for, for a very long time. Yeah. And her E. coli levels, yes. we've got a similar story there. Yeah, we do. Naturally, they're going to be that seesaw. But remember, we had pretty much 0% mm. from a distribution point of view and our goal is 70 to 90 and we got a 80%. Bang. Yeah. So still looking for a little bit of diversity in terms of the strains but um sorry in terms of the range but from like a relative sense in terms of the overall aerobic bacteria very very happy so remember we said e coli is melatonin so her sleep was night and day and bowel motility restored so going to the toilet every day which is obviously essential for a whole host of reasons so that was like high fives all round, yeah. We were both having a little bit of a party when we got these results. Yeah, you'd celebrate those alone. I know. But our bacteroides, which remember were so, so low, 
Um, and these are the bulk, or they should be the bulk of our anaerobic bacteria. Six um, percent is what we had, and we landed on a bloody brilliant ninety percent with four strains. That's huge. So yes, we could have one more strain from diversity, which means broth doesn't stop, but does it ever? No, it's a forever thing, as we've been discussing. Um, and I think that's just again night and day. And for me, a real testament to not supplements, as we've discussed, but what you do to so the commitment to the quality proteins, you know, the free range eggs, grass fed meats, but the commitment to things like broth and organ meats, which again can take time. Like you might only do that three months of the protocol when you've got your head around all the other things you've got to do. But again, like you're in charge this is your health journey. Your practitioner guides you and, and, you know, absolutely is there for you, but they can't drink the broth for you. <laughs> they can't like the organ meats for you. No. You know, so how much of that, how mm. much is that a testament to the power of real food? Yeah. Literally that inclusion of yeah. bone broth and the organ meats. And I want to, mm. I want to get Jane's results and I need to send them to another client who has just come back with a result of um, about a 2% distribution with their bacteroides. So mm. I, I really would love to tell yeah. them about Jane's story now and give them that reassurance. Send them the episode. They <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So some amazing results, but as I said earlier, we didn't sort of, you know, didn't nail everything per se, but again, for me, this, the, the journey continues. What we haven't um, fixed completely with Jane are her lactobacillus levels. Um, she's definitely got a little bit of work to do with the, the restoration of some of these beneficial bacteria. And we had a good chat about that. And I feel like there definitely could have been more of a focus on the prebiotics and the resistant starch. Um, it's tricky in your mind when you've been taught low carb to then be told to have things like white rice, white potato and sweet potato. I had this conversation nearly every day. And how does that conversation go? Well, it just we just need to break down the physiology of it, yeah? We've been telling everyone for seven years that you, quote unquote, should really be only eating these foods post-training for muscle glycogen replenishment, high intensity exercise, so on. But then when we look at what happens to those carbohydrates when they become a resistant starch is the insulin response is almost not even there. It's so low. Mm -hmm. It doesn't impact our metabolic goals, our blood sugar control, our fat burning. It feeds our gut bugs. Yeah. The word gut bugs, the word resistant tells you what's going on. Resistant to digestion in the small intestine or stomach and small intestine bypasses to the large intestine where those beneficial bacteria should live and acts as their food. So for Jane, we continued our cultured wellness to provide her with that beautiful natural source of lactobacilli, um, 21 billion per cup. So we're having a cup a day, which is a really good dosage from a CFU, from a colony forming unit point of view. Um, but we really had to ramp up the prebiotics. So building them into the meal plan a little bit more in terms of, all right, where are we going to get the, the rice if it's the rice? Where are we going to get the cooked and cooled sweet potato and white potato? And, you know, that for me is going to be the cherry on the cake or the icing on the cake because that's where we're going next. And I think there's going to be even more improvements with obviously continuing to restore the microbiome but acknowledging the role that these bacteria play. So, again, immune system, um, neurotransmitters, mental health, methylation, like, you know, basically it's significant. So we really want to um, keep working on that. But, again, these strategies aren't anything that we're ever going to stop. I think, you know, all of us can benefit in cultural wellness as long as we know how much we need. Um, and definitely all of us need prebiotics and resistant starch. Yeah. Yeah. Prebiotics is something that you usually would build in relatively relatively slowly or at a paced rate. 
just to ensure mm. that there's no adverse reaction to the inclusion of those resistant Great starches point. because we mm. haven't got the you haven't got the right bacteria living there in your large intestine and sometimes they are susceptible to yeah, really great point, which is something actually I do want to reiterate with the whole conversation. Probiotics, prebiotics, antimicrobials, whatever you're doing, please start gradually. Like you've got to build up your tolerance, but you also want to assess how your body responds. If, for example, you have an undiagnosed case of SIBO, like a small intestinal um, bacterial overgrowth, like you technically shouldn't have prebiotics for a long time. Like even a couple of months, some people can't tolerate them for. So that's very individual, but that's why you will always test small amounts. And then what you end up doing is landing on what portions or serves that you enjoy. Like it's not too forced, I find, but that you can tolerate across the week and obviously keep doing long-term. Mm, mm, beautiful. So a pretty in-depth discussion on Jane. Um, I want to put it over to you, Steph. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk on, wanted to mention, wanted to highlight for our audience? I, I honestly think that I'm, as I said, I love this before and after. I think it's a really great test case on the control that we have as the as as person, as the case study, what's in our power, and um, you know what we need to commit to when we're acknowledging that. Yep, I'm ready to do my biosmearing or my CDSA or whatever it is. That to manage expectations, I don't want this to sound overwhelming, but I want you to acknowledge that it's going to be a bit of a process. And again, personality traits approach things differently. Some people get totally freaked out. Others are like, oh yeah, cool, I'll do that. Let me know. Send me the protocol. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's fascinating as a practitioner in of itself. But for me, yeah, it's really about the powerful information that we get from this testing. So stop the guessing. But remember the gradual introduction and the real personalization of restoring your microbiome. Like I've been doing this test for years and I've not seen one good one. I think Kirsty says that she's seen one. And as we always cover, there's so many reasons why our gut health is imbalanced. You know, previous pharmaceutical use, stress, toxins that we breathe or eat, um, gluten, you know, leaky gut exposure to autoimmune triggers, and the list goes on. Like it's hard, but it doesn't have to be when we get the information and develop a plan to fix it. Yeah, I think that's a really empowering thing for our listeners to know. Beautiful. So reach out to us if you have any questions about testing or if you want to know more. As I mentioned, there'll be a few resources for you in the show notes, including a bit of an example report so you can visualize a bit more about what Bioscreen in particular looks like. And please contact us at The Natural Nutritionist if you'd like personalized support or you can jump online and book a complimentary 15-minute consultation with myself, Ellie or Erin if you want to, yeah, ask us some questions and find out more. Wonderful. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, team. See you next time, guys. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real.
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.